I had a, a friend who went off to Bible college as a young man with the aim to be a pastor. And he was really excited to go, um, primarily one to learn, to be under these godly professors and teachers as he would learn the word of God, but he also was excited to be amongst his peers, other brothers and sisters who were thinking of ministry in some form. And, um, and he was really excited to learn from some of the older students while he was there. But to his surprise, he was kind of shocked at how things were there. He was hoping that there would be some very young, godly men who were serious about ministry, who were serious about becoming pastors. And, and he was discouraged because he, what he experienced was primarily the in, immaturity of these young men, while he himself was a young man as well. And there's no doubt that he was probably a little proud and, and, and prideful in regards to this, but he was shocked to see so many young men who were wanting to become pastors, yet their lives did not demonstrate an intentionality, a discipline that would, require, that would be required to be a pastor. But as he got to know a lot of these young men more, he discovered something. The more and more he talked to them, the more he realized that the majority of these peers of his had never in any way experienced what it means to be discipled by an older, mature Christian. And so though they had a desire to be pastors, they never had their own pastor, they never had their own men or women in their church come alongside them, invest in them, show them what does it mean to follow Jesus, what does it mean to be a young man of God and a young woman of God. And my friend, on the other hand, had the complete opposite experience. He had lots of people invest in his life. He had lots of people give their time to him. They impacted his life, and it impacted who he became. My friend came out of that whole experience believing that discipleship and growth are essential to the Christian life. And I would argue that discipleship and growth are not just essential to the Christian life, but they are essential to the life of a local church. And so this morning, we're going to look at the eighth mark of a Christ-honoring church. This is the second last one. Next week, we'll be looking at the final mark. But this one is a biblical understanding of growth and discipleship. So let me pray for us. Father, as we look to your word now, speak to our hearts by your spirit. Convict us, encourage us, strengthen us. And Lord, give us a greater desire to be faithful to what you've called us to as your disciples, that you've called us to be disciple makers as well. And so we pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, I've given in your bulletin an an outline that you can follow along with. Um, I encourage you not to try to turn in your Bibles to keep up with me, but just to mark down the references so you can look at them a little later. In order to understand discipleship and growth, we first need to step back and, and understand what is God's view of growth? What does God think of growth? And if you look at the Bible, the Bible speaks of growth in two ways. You could really summarize those two ways as width and depth. 
God is concerned about width and depth. So when we think about width, you look at the whole story of the Bible, you'll discover a God who is all about growth. He's all about expansion. Growth in the Bible is a sign of God's blessing. Genesis 1 and 2, God blessed Adam and Eve and he called them to multiply. And he called them to expand the garden. In Genesis 12, God calls Abraham to himself and tells him he's going to bless him. And and one of the ways God's going to bless him is that a great nation is going to come from Abraham. And then in Genesis 15, God expands a little bit further to Abraham what it means that he's going to bless him. And he tells him that his offspring will reflect the number of stars in the heavens. And so later on through the story, we're, we're told that when Jacob and his sons went down into Egypt, they were only but 70 people. But Exodus 1 tells us that the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So much so that the Egyptians began to see them as a threat. And even when they were enslaved by the Egyptians, they continued to increase in number. And that's why Moses, speaking to the people before they entered into the promised land, he says to them in Deuteronomy 10, 22, Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Moses is acknowledging in Deuteronomy that God has already began to fulfill the promise he made to Abraham. Your offspring will be like the stars in heaven. In Psalm 72, 8, the the psalmist cries out about God, may he have dominion from sea to sea and and from the river to the ends of the earth. God's in the business of growing and expanding his kingdom. Now, you might not be a Christian here this morning. You might not be a follower of Jesus, but you need to understand something. The Bible teaches that one day the whole earth will be under the supreme reign of Jesus Christ. His kingdom will advance. All the nations will bow before the King of Kings. Will you bow before him today? See, God is in the business of growing and expanding his kingdom. And when you come to the New Testament, the church is but a small group of Christians in Jerusalem. But we begin to see God at work and his church begins to expand. His church begins to grow. In Acts 2, 41, after Peter's Pentecost sermon, we read this. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. In Acts 2.47, we're told, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In Acts 6.7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So when when you have a full picture of the story of the Bible, God's in the business of growing his people. He's in the business of expanding his church, his kingdom. You see, God doesn't subscribe to the notion that small is beautiful. Now, why am I telling you this? 
Because I think as Christians, we're tempted to two things. One, we can be skeptical of growth. We can be skeptical of size. And the other temptation is that we can make an idol of growth, an idol of size. You see, sometimes we're prone to think as Christians that big means bad. Or if, if a church does grow large, I wonder how they've compromised. But is it possible that God can bless a church and grow a church in numbers precisely because that church is being faithful to what God has called them to? See, we shouldn't be suspect. We shouldn't be suspicious of growth. Now, of course, growth doesn't necessarily mean God's blessing. Nor does it necessarily mean that it's a sign of health. There's lots of churches that are, have grown and are quite large, and I can promise you that they don't have God's blessing or favor because they don't preach his word. But just because a church has grown in size doesn't necessarily indicate that the church is healthy either. But it is possible for a church to grow in size because God is actually truly blessing the ministry at that church. Now the other temptation, one is to be suspicious, the other temptation is to make an idol out of growth, specifically in regards to, to size and growing in numbers. And I think this is a temptation for a lot of pastors. I've been to a lot of pastors' meetings, and, and it's, it's so easy for pastors to, to talk about how much their church has grown. Not so much the maturity of the people, but whether or not the church has grown from 50 to 200 or 200 to 1,000. You see, we, we often define success based upon size. We define health based upon size. And there are many large churches that are unhealthy. And there are also many small churches that are healthy. But there's also small churches that are unhealthy, and there's also big churches that are healthy. You see, the goal as a local church should never be, we want to be a large church, and it should never be, we want to be a small church. The goal should be faithfulness. Now, my natural desire is to want to be small because it's nice, it's easier, but I don't get to dictate that. God is the one who dictates those things. We should be faithful to what God has called us to and then leave the results to him. We should be about advancing his gospel into the world. You see, I have very little concern about the size of our church, whether we're large or whether we're small. But I do have concern about the faithfulness of our church, that we would be faithful as a church. So the one aspect of growth, growth is expansion, width. God is growing his kingdom and his church. More and more people are coming to faith. But there's another aspect to growth in the Bible, and I would argue that this aspect is actually far more important. And this growth has to do with depth. Meaning, God isn't merely concerned about size, but he's, about, he's concerned about the depth of his people. 
You see, there are churches that are a mile wide, but about an inch deep. And I don't think that's God's recipe for healthy churches. You see, the New, the New Testament understanding of growth isn't just more people, but people who are growing up and maturing in their faith, becoming more like Jesus. And Paul writes this in Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So God has given specific gifts in the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Why? For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to mature womanhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children. Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up. In love. That's the idea of growth that the New Testament is primarily concerned about. That the people of God would grow up into mature manhood, mature womanhood. This is what God's fundamentally concerned about. Which means, as, as Dever puts it, a healthy church has a pervasive concern with growth. Not simply growing numbers, but growing members. We as a church should be all out committed to growing into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Now listen to the Apostle Peter's words in 2 Peter 1, 3-8. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. That is one of the most incredible verses you will ever read in the Bible. A part of redemption is that you and I would become partakers of the divine, divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. Here it is, verse 5. For this very reason... For what reason? For, for the fact that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. For the fact that he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that we might be partakers of his divine nature. For this very reason, church of Jesus Christ, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective 
or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For this very reason, make every effort. Do those words, make every effort, describe the way in which you pursue spiritual growth, spiritual maturity? 1 Peter 2, 2 2-3, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. 2 Peter 3, 17-18, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 5, the writer of Hebrews actually rebukes the Christians he's speaking to for the fact that they ought to be far more mature than they actually already are. And he says this, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Meaning, you're still an infant, not a grown-up. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You see, God isn't merely concerned about the expansion of his kingdom. He's also concerned about the character of the citizens in his kingdom. He wants to see his citizens become fully mature. He desires for them to reach full maturity in Christ. And so if God is concerned about the growth of his people, we as his people also ought to be concerned as well. The local church should be committed to not only seeing more people come to faith, but seeing those people built up into the faith in order that they reach full maturity. So this is God's view of growth. But the question is, how does God accomplish growth in the life of his church? How does he accomplish growth in his church? And that leads to the second point, God's program for growth. Now, first thing I want us to understand is this. All growth, all spiritual growth comes from God. He is the cause of all growth in our lives. That's why Colossians 2, 18 and 19 says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. We grow because God grows us. 1 Corinthians 3, 5-7. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? This is, this is Paul having this discussion with the believers in Corinth. Some of them are following Apollos. Some of them are giving their allegiance to Paul. And Paul's saying, what, who are we? What is Apollos? What, what is Paul? Servants through whom you believe, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. 
So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. God gets the credit for any kind of growth in the Christian life. And this completely destroys any room for boasting in the Christian life. If you grow as a Christian, it's because God has been working in you. He has been growing you. And this is why Paul gives thanks to God in his greeting to the Thessalonians about their growth. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. He's thanking God because he understands that their faith that is growing abundantly is a result of God at work. See, the Bible makes clear that all spiritual growth is from God. He's the source of all growth. But how does God actually do it? How does he actually shape and conform and mold his people into the image of Christ? Well, there's a lot of different means by which God shapes and matures his people. For example, we know from scripture that he often will allow trials in our lives to shape us and conform us. But I believe the primary means that God shapes and grows his people is specifically through the local church. God has ordained that the local church, that, that is the members who make up a church, they are the primary means in which his disciples are discipled and matured. You see, the local church is God's program for growing his disciples. Now, there's two aspects I want to look at when it comes to discipleship within the local church. There's what I would call, it's probably not the best terminology, but I'll unpack what I mean by them, corporate discipleship and individual discipleship. So first, corporate discipleship. What I mean by corporate discipleship is really just being committed to the marks that we've looked at through this series. If we as a church, as a local congregation, as individuals that make up this church, if we take the marks that we have looked at through this series seriously, we will grow as disciples of Christ. If you commit yourself to the expositional to, to, to the exposition of preaching of God's word on a regular weekly basis, if you commit yourself to biblical theology, that is the study of God's word, if you commit yourself to the study of the gospel, to evangelism, to meaningful church membership, to church discipline, and what we're going to look at next week, leadership, I can promise you that if you commit yourself to those things, you will help others grow in their discipleship, and you will also grow in your discipleship. You see, expositional preaching is the essence of what I would call corporate discipleship. Week in and week out, I'm expounding God's word to shape our thinking and our affections that we'd grow into the likeness of Christ. I am, in a sense, discipling us corporately by the word of God. But here's the thing. Each of us have a responsibility, even in our corporate services, to disciple one another. For example, when you sing in a Sunday morning service, who are you primarily singing to? 
God? Yes, but it's more than that. It's interesting that the New Testament actually commands that we sing to one another. Ephesians 5, 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Which means, friends, when you come here on a Sunday morning, when you start singing, it is not primarily just about you and Jesus. The purpose of why God has given you a voice is so that you would also sing to those around you. In a sense, you are preaching through song. You are instructing through song. That's why you ought to sing loud, even if you can't sing on key. The Lord will show you grace, and we will show you grace as well. But we actually have a task. What you're doing when you're singing is you're proclaiming truth to one another. You're seeking to shape each other by truth. When we pray together corporately, whether it's in the service or or whether it's on a Wednesday night, there's an aspect of discipleship taking place. It provides the means for newer Christians to learn how to pray by hearing other more mature Christians pray. See, because so much of discipleship isn't just teaching, but it's also living by example. You display to your kids every Sunday morning what it means to lift your voices to God in praise and worship. It's in our corporate gatherings on a weekly basis that we get to encourage one another, one another build one another up in the faith. And the question is, would that describe you? When you come here on a Sunday morning, do you primarily think of your purpose here as being a disciple maker? That as you fellowship with your brothers and sisters, as you sing with them, as you pray with them, that you're primarily seeking to disciple, to be a blessing to another brother or sister. You see, when we corporately function the way we ought to as a local church, It also provides the way for us to practice what I would call individual discipleship. Now, what I mean by that isn't you by yourself growing with Jesus or you only spending time with one other individual. What I mean by individual discipleship is simply the idea of organic Christian living that results in Christians shaping and discipling each other. Organic Christian living that results in Christians shaping and discipling each other. See, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ means you're called to be a disciple of others. It doesn't matter whether you've been a Christian for three years or 25 years. Each of us, in our own unique ways, has been called by God to be disciples and to be disciplers. In the same way he's called all of us as Christians to evangelize, yet for each of us that might look very differently, the Bible makes clear that we have a responsibility not only for our own growth, but also the growth of our fellow brothers and sisters. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 9-11, Paul writes, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain the salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or sleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up 
just as you are doing. In Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, which I've quoted a lot over through this series, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In Titus 2, 1 to 5, Paul actually instructs the older women to disciple the younger women. They are to teach what is good, And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And the same is true for the older men to the younger men. Jesus is the prime example of discipleship. He called the twelve to himself. He taught them, he invested in them, he encouraged them, he rebuked them, he led by example for them, he prayed for them. And even with the twelve, he invested more of his time with three of the twelve. And after discipling them, he then called them to go and make disciples themselves. Now, I I realize that someone might say, yeah, but he's Jesus. And you're right. None of us can be Jesus. But he leaves us an example of what it means to invest our lives into the lives of others. Dietrich Bonhoeffer described Jesus as the man for others. The man for others. And that's really what discipleship is all about. It's a life committed to building up others in the faith. That's really all it is. Dever says this, the discipling life is an others-oriented life. It labors in the power of God to proclaim Christ and to present others mature in Christ. The Apostle Paul saw his aim, his ministry, to present believers mature in Christ. He says in Colossians 1, 28-29, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. You know, when when I think about my own life and what has shaped my Christian life the most, There have been many things that have impacted my walk with the Lord. There have been preachers that I have listened to. There have been books that I have read. There have been classes that I have taken. There have been conferences that I have gone to. But nothing has shaped me more than the men and women who have invested their time and energy into my life. From my parents to Pastor Dwayne Klein, to my old friend Kevis, who was a mentor, to Antoinette, to Jason Hutchins, to Jason Hagen, Andy Fuller, Paul Martin, my Uncle Jer, and my Aunt Heather. All these people gave up their energy and their time to invest in my life in all different ways and at all different times, and I'm partly who I am today because of these people. See, we often think We have to do something grand in order to impact the kingdom of God. Write a book, have a famous blog, start a charitable organization, and all those things are good. But if you invest your time and energy in a few people's lives, you'll have an incredible impact for the kingdom of God in ways that you will never fully 
comprehend. If you've been a Christian for five to ten years or more than that, how have you discipled others? Have you discipled others? You know, I think a good majority of Christians desire to truly disciple, but they just don't feel ready to disciple. They don't, they don't feel they're godly enough themselves to disciple other Christians. They, they feel they don't know the Bible well enough to disciple others. But here's the thing. Discipleship isn't for the experts. It's for everyday Christians who simply want to impact others for good. See, I think the word discipleship can almost seem overwhelming or seem a little too weighty. And so maybe a better word to help you understand what discipleship is all about is simply the word influence. Influence. In other words, discipleship is fundamentally about influencing others for good. It's about seeking to deliberately do spiritual good in another person's life. And, and you don't have to have your life all put together in order to discipleship. Discipleship. Disciple. Part of discipleship is about displaying your strengths, but it's also about displaying your weaknesses. See, other Christians need to see, especially newer Christians, they need to see that you're still a work in progress like them. You know, I I think of of the amount of young married couples, and, and I'm still a young married couple, but I think about the young amount of young married couples that my wife, Gracie, and I have been able to help because we were open about our weaknesses in our marriage. That we were able to tell newlyweds, listen, the first two years of our marriage were horrific. But if you commit yourselves and you, and you seek to forgive and you seek to work through those issues, God can transform your marriage. But you have to be willing to commit. You have to be willing to be all in. God has used the weaknesses in our marriage by being open about them to help others in their marriages. See, God can use your weaknesses just as much as he can use your strength, strengths in another's life. Why? Because part of what discipleship is, is teaching someone that for the rest of their lives, they're going to be utterly dependent upon God's grace. There will never be a time in your Christian life where you will not be in need of the gospel. And when you disciple, you get the opportunity to explain and show younger Christians that you're still just as in need of grace as they are. You see, the the Christian life isn't one of moving from dependence to independence. The Christian life is moving from independence to dependence. And your weaknesses are able to demonstrate that for another less mature Christian. You know, when when parents raise their kids, when you raise your children, part of your task as a parent is to actually take your child from dependence to independence. If, If your goal is for your child to be dependent upon you for the rest of your life, I got news for you. That's not what parenting is supposed to be about. The goal of a parent is to take a child from dependence to independence. 
But in the Christian life, it's the opposite. The Christian life is to take someone from independence in self to complete dependence upon God. See, I came to faith when I was 16 years old. And I can honestly say, and I don't mean this arrogantly, but I can honestly say at 31, I know that I'm holier now than when I was 16. But here's the thing. I repent more now than I did when I was 16. See, often we tend to think that the holier we become, the less sin we'll have to repent over. And I would argue the opposite is true. The holier you become, the more repentant you become because you're more sensitive to the reality of sin in your life. I became a Christian at 16, and yet I feel my need for other Christians more now than I did when I was 16. I feel my need for other brothers and sisters in my life more than I did before. I pray more now. I read my Bible more now. I'm more committed to the local church now. See, the more I grow in my faith, the more I realize I'm in utter need of God's grace and other Christians. All of these are indications that I've gone from independence to dependence. You know, we we so often think that the, the most mature Christian is the one who doesn't need people. The most mature Christian is the one who realizes his need for people and for Christ. His need for the local church. So don't allow your weaknesses or your limitations to keep you from influencing others in their faith. So what might this look like practically? What might this look like practically speaking in your life? Well, it depends on who you are and the specific circumstances God has placed you in right now in your life. Discipleship in your life right now could be more formal. You could be studying a book with another brother or sister. You could be getting together with a few other uh, members in your church and listening to some kind of lecture or sermon and discussing and discussing it and praying for one another. It, It could simply just look right now in your life discipling your own children. Your discipleship might look also more organic. It might be getting together for coffee once a month or or every other week or every week with another brother or sister to share what's going on and to encourage one another and to pray for one another. It may be having people in your home and having spiritual conversations with them. See, so much of discipling is doing what you regularly do, but bringing people along with you and having intentional conversations about life and spiritual matters. I think the best person who who demonstrated this for me was the pastor I worked for in Ottawa. His name was Andy Fuller. And I don't mean this disrespectfully. He didn't teach me a lot about the Bible. But he brought me along when I was his intern to everything. So I got to see him do funerals. I got to see him grieve with a mother who lost their child or, or a son who lost their mother at the hospital. I got to be in those sessions where he counseled others. I got to just walk and follow him, kind of like what Jesus did with his disciples. And it deeply impacted me. Now, part of that is, is, is who his personality is. He's a guy who loves to have people always around him. 
Whereas I'm like kind of the opposite. And so, but I learned from him and, and that's something that I'm trying to implement more in my life, even though I'll probably never be able to do it like he does it. See, here's the beautiful thing about discipleship. When you're committed to investing in others, you will grow and benefit from it yourself. Iron sharpening iron. See, discipleship always entails giving and receiving. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. When you invest in other Christians, you will learn from them. Younger men ought to learn from older men, but older men ought to also learn from younger men. And the same goes for the women in this church. And the, the kind of discipleship I'm speaking of here, it can't be quantified or measured. I think a lot of pastors and churches fall prey to this. Dever says this, It's tempting at times for pastors to reduce their churches to manageable statistics of attendance, baptism, giving, and membership, where growth is tangible, recordable, demonstrable, and comparable. It's tempting to do that. But the kind of discipleship I'm speaking of here can't really be recorded, where growth isn't really tangible or, or de demonstrable. It's a culture of discipleship, where brothers and sisters are investing their time and energy in one another. Here's what I think discipleship entails, the elements of what makes discipleship discipleship. One, it's relational. You can't disciple anyone if you're not in relation with them. It's intentional. You will never disciple anyone spontaneously. You have to be intentional in discipleship. There's teaching involved. That doesn't mean formal teaching like what I'm doing. It simply means talking about life at times and helping them think through things. Taking the word of God and, and thinking of texts that, that might inform someone in this specific situation that they are in. It sometimes requires correcting. Calling your brother or your sister to repentance because of a wrong decision they made. It's also modeling. Follow me, as Paul says, as I follow Christ. It's loving, it's influencing. See, I pray that we as a church would be intentional in helping each other grow in the faith. And that might look like a variety of different ways. That we would grow up in every way into him who is the head, that is Christ. We've been given a responsibility to one another. So we've seen God's view of growth, we've seen his program for growth, corporate discipleship and individual discipleship, and thirdly, I just want to speak to the cost of growth. What I mean by that is this, discipleship is costly, it's hard. David Wells says it best when he says it's very easy to build churches in which seekers congregate. It's very hard to build churches in which biblical faith is maturing into genuine discipleship. Paul in Colossians 1, 28-29, which I read, says that he, his desire is to present everyone mature in Christ. And then he says, for this I toil, this I labor, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. 
Discipleship takes time. You have to be patient because people don't change overnight. I remember when I first started preaching at 18, I was convinced that I could preach a sermon in which everyone was changed overnight. But people don't change like that. People are more like trees that grow over a long period of time until one day you look and go, wow, look how big the tree is now. That's how people grow. And so we need to have an eternal perspective when we disciple. As Dever says, the work of discipling occurs in the present, but it has its eye set on the last day. It requires long-term thinking. It requires an investor's mentality, knowing that the return is eternal. There will be disappointments. Not every discipleship relationship goes well. It requires prayer, but most importantly, it requires sacrificial love. Friends, we have an opportunity to have kingdom influence in each other's lives. Jesus invites us to be his disciples, but also to be his disciple makers. And what did it cost Jesus for us to become his disciples? It cost his life. He lovingly, sacrificially died so that we might become disciples of him. And so let us lovingly, sacrificially die to self for the sake of one another. Let's pray. Father, help us in this task. And Father, forgive us for neglecting this task. Forgive me, Lord, for neglecting this task. It's so easy to rather just be at home and be alone than to give my time and energy to others. And so, Lord, forgive me, forgive us, and Lord, may we be a church that, are, that is truly committed to seeing others grow in their faith for the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.